0: Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Markets podcast. I am your host, Krishan Kupchan. My guest today is Beth Morrissey, who is a managing partner at Climate International Consultants, which is an advisory and research shop dedicated to frontier and emerging markets. Now, I would like to highlight one particular tidbit here, which is that Climate International and Beth have been at the forefront of emerging markets for over 35 years. To give you some context on that, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, and the USSR became Russia and went through its privatization in the 90s. Kleinman was founded in 1987, and Beth and her other managing partner were there at the time, kind of you know participating in these markets. So, a few more pieces of context here before we get started. One is, given that it was founded in 1987, it would be 14 years later that China joined the WTO and kicked off one of the greatest developmental runs in the history of kind of humanity and industrialization. Um, and another you know, fun kind of fact in terms of thinking about the last 35 years is in the 90s, Singapore's GDP was $36 billion. Today, it is $390 billion. So a shocking amount, has happened since then. And I uh, look forward deeply uh, to learning from Beth in this episode. So without further ado, let's begin. Given that climate has been at the forefront of emerging markets for the last 30 years, many of our listeners are curious and eager to learn about uh, the the lessons from history. And so Beth, uh, if you would, would you be able to share some background about Climate International, its mission, uh, and it's key
1: areas of expertise in emerging markets. Sure. As, as you said, Chris, we were sort of out in front of the path. Um People, the term emerging markets had recently been coined at the IFC by Antoine van Ackmel, the IFC, uh, the private sector arm of the World Bank Group. And We were interested. We both came from development economic backgrounds and decided that it was worth giving this a shot. Now, keep in mind, this was before Brady Bonds. I mean, we were sort of at the height of the Latin debt crisis. The MSCI Emerging Markets Index had not been created. When we first started, um, Portugal and Greece were in the Emerging Markets basket and regularly, friends and clients said, well, why isn't Italy? Um Now, since then, they've both been upgraded and then Greece was downgraded again during its crisis in the last decade. And then, as you mentioned, the fall of the Berlin Wall issued in this wave of emerging markets. And we can now joke about the fact that You know, as all these new countries opened up in Central Europe and Central Asia, um, the real key was, and we were seeing it in in places like the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa at the same time, every market wanted a national airline and a stock exchange. That was sort of how you showed you were a grown-up market. In the early years, we did a lot of public and private sector training um, for capital markets participants. In, but what was interesting is we can go back historically and see that some of these projects um were really sort of useless because we actually trained on you know how to develop a capital market what's a treasury bill how do you open a stock market all of those sorts of you know technical things as well um but we were doing it in countries that still only had state owned banks so if you think about it it really was sort of a a waste of global taxpayer dollars because some of these markets have really you know 35 years later 30 years later not evolved Really, much at all, but it was interesting. We we spent a lot of time in the late '80s and '90s, and even into the early 2000s, um, working on these multilateral projects on, you know, how to develop the market, how to attract, what are investors really looking for, and that's what we were generally called in for because we serve the public and private sector, <clears throat> and it was really interesting to be able to impart what foreign investors were actually looking for. You know, what were they looking for? Well, they were looking for a secondary market. They were looking for a level playing field. They were looking to not pay 30% taxes when domestic investors weren't paying any. Um, We also, during that time, supported the whole private pension fund development in Central Europe and in Latin America, and of course, since then they've been, you know, totally dismantled for short-term fiscal and political reasons, um, leaving essentially the same hole that these private pension funds were supposed to plug. Um, and I think one of the one of the best sort of memories of the early days of of emerging in frontier stock markets, and we still see it in some of the frontier markets, is, you know, you're buying into middle-class growth. You're buying into an economy that's going to grow faster than a developed market. And the two top buys through the 80s, the 90s, and into the 2000s, where you buy the breweries and the cement companies. What more shows a market is growing than if the middle class has enough money to buy a beer after work on Friday huh. and if we're building new buildings. This raises a follow-up question
0: for myself, which is, would you be able to describe some of those earlier assignments that you kind of did when it came to you know, opening up these capital markets from like beginning to end, like one specific uh, example, because you shared quite a few uh, observations from those there. I'd love to, like to be walked through uh, one of those uh, specific assignments that were kind of striking to you in terms of understanding what development went then and what it looks like right now.
1: Well, it was interesting. We did um, several training programs under the um, auspices of the World Bank for um, Central Asian markets as they were beginning to think about capital markets. Um, And it was lovely, the World Bank saw fit several times a year to send me off to Istanbul um, which of course was lovely. But what was interesting was several of the, of the countries in Central Asia, of course, are of Turkic origin. And what these market participants or market participants to be did not realize was that I could actually understand a fair amount of what they were saying to each other and it was it was very clear at the time that that the sequencing chosen by the multilaterals in terms of of developing a proper financial sector overall was was wrong for instance um i I always dread naming names, but um Kyrgyzstan, for example. They came to the trainings. I went to a capital market development workshop there where the, the president of the republic was spoken, was in attendance. The market capitalization today is probably pretty much the same it was in the early 90s. I mean, it's, it's since, you know, been partially bought by the Istanbul Stock Exchange, but the growth just, just hasn't happened.
0: Why do you think that's the case in Kyrgyzstan? Because I I was there earlier this year and um, obviously this is uh, almost a, um, I I hesitate to say it in this way, but almost like a kind of outpost of kind of some violent politics that's kind of happened in, uh, in in terms of, you know, I I think a couple of their politicians were kind of killed in the last few years. um, And it's very uh, mafioso from a kind of narrative perspective from what I heard on the ground, at least not speaking to people there. Um, well, what do you think folks got wrong in terms of their perception of Kyrgyzstan and its potential twenty years ago, and like you know, the reason why it's flatlined right now?
1: Well, a big part of it was that the rest of the financial sector, the banking sector, the non-bank financial institutions, were, you know, haven't weren't developed then and have not sort of burgeoned as they have in next door Kazakhstan or in um, Uzbekistan. They're just, you know, it has to come from, it has to come from the top down politically if it's going to happen. And it didn't really happen. How how does one identify the types of leaders that
0: are willing to engage in the types of actions that leads to accelerated growth, um, opening up of the economy and industrialization? You mentioned Kazakhstan, for example, it seems like they had a fairly uh, strong run of kind of you know oil backed growth, but also the previous president, it seems, up until later on at least, was uh, fairly good at navigating these types of things. Uh, in contrast to I guess you know the kind of ping ponging that exists. Exists.
1: Well, in- part of it is you know Kazakhstan obviously is is resource rich and and Kyrgyzstan isn't, um, and I think that's. I mean, if you look around the world and which markets have sort of, for example, you could even go to go to Africa. When did Ghana become become the darling of Africa? When they found oil. Um, So the resource rich emerging in frontier markets um have. I would say traditionally leapfrogged neighbors who are not as resource rich because they attract you know, they've, they've, they're they attracting the foreign direct investment and foreign direct investment generally precedes portfolio inflows.
0: Right. Do you think as the types of resources that become valuable in modern supply chains, i.e. as a result of the electric vehicle uh, and, you know, green economy uh, value chain that's emerging, um, do you think there'll be new countries that uh, are particularly well-positioned to capitalize on that are there any particular countries that you're kind of tracking right now
1: in that vein? oh i think i think there's there's more than a few um you know particularly in 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 sub saharan africa which is so resource rich in things like lithium um and you know i i believe that you know we're seeing fdi trickle into some of these places like you know, Djibouti and Ethiopia. And, you know, Ethiopia's already announced it, you know, it's working on developing its stock exchange.
0: <laughs> so, if we're going to zoom out a bit, um, as mentioned, you, you, spoke, you spoke about greedy bonds at the beginning. In um, your kind of, you know, uh, in, in the last 30 years of experience in, in, in this area, you know, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme um what do you think are some kind of you know lessons we should take from the last 30 years moving forward uh, for kind of you know looking at emerging markets and frontier markets and what do you think is kind of like you know playing out on kind of a narrative basis here from like a big theme macro perspective
1: can you repeat that one more time of course yeah so uh
0: Given the last 30 years of uh, development that's kind of taken place, right, and given kind of observations of these assignments and uh, economies in, you know, either developing or not developing according to what people believe would kind of take place, I'm curious in terms of the patterns, you know, there's this quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Uh, what are some of the things that you think have interesting historical analogies as we look at kind of emerging markets and frontier markets? during the upcoming decade when it comes to you know comparing it to the last 30 years uh, moving back?
1: Well, I mean, 30 years ago, what were we dealing with? We were dealing with the Latin American debt crisis. Well, guess what? Here we are again as a result. I mean, I honestly believe more than half of it is is because of COVID and the war. You know, as we're seeing this sort of wave of sovereign defaults start you know start to really pick up but the other thing is you know it's also decades of economic mismanagement and not only economic mismanagement in the domestic markets but the fact that i mean there was a point where i had a client we were joking that Um, Bhutan could come to market because everyone was looking for a yield pickup. You know, Bhutan's a country that's totally closed and nobody knows anything about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my dog could have come to market and said, oh, I'm a great, you know, emerging market sovereign. (laughs) And so the analysts, the investors were looking for pickup. did they do their homework? Not necessarily. Um, I've encountered so many investors who invested in places where they've never actually really dug down into things like current account deficit and fiscal deficit and debt service to receivables. Um, they look at the sort of Top line. Wow. You know, the currency has been fairly steady and I can get a, you know, 5% yield pickup. Why not? I can beat the benchmark.
0: So do you you think we've been, um, Jay Newman has this essay uh, in the Financial Times called uh, Just Don't Do It. And he refers to uh, some of these sovereign debt issuances on the buy side. As uh, being akin to being addicted to cocaine, and so far as you know, you I abso- a, I absolutely
1: I absolutely agree.
0: Okay. Okay. So so,
1: wh- and what- and going back, I mean, going back historically, I was at a meeting in London one time, and this portfolio manager said, "Wow, I've just invested in in the sovereign bonds of Cote d'Ivoire." Well, the only trouble was this particular portfolio manager didn't really know where Cote d'Ivoire was on the map. Wow. And you know, I'm certainly not saying that's an industry trend, but I think over the past, you know particularly in the days of uh, you know the recent decade of QE, um, it was just it was just too tempting. I mean, all the times Argentina's come back to market and all the times Argentina has defaulted, you know, have we learned nothing?
0: Here's a question I have for you. So if you look at the industry structure in, say, uh, venture capital, right, there's an assumption, and a, you know, willingness on behalf of investors that they're going to lose a certain amount within their portfolio. They're going to you know, have, say, for example, in a portfolio of, say, 10 companies, they expect five of those companies to, to go bust and to write those down to zero. Uh, as a result, they are less stringent when it comes to bankruptcy proceedings, and they have, you know, certain social norms that allow for things not to get stuck when a company fails. Uh, it strikes me that when it comes to sovereign debt restructuring, there are a myriad of issues. Could you run us through why sovereign debt crises one happen apart from the economic mismanagement, but two, like what's what's actually like stops? Effective recovery after that, because it strikes me that you know a lot of these sovereign debt crises lead to a lost decade um, plus of growth, so that they're, they're incredibly uh, harmful. Um, and I'm wondering what exactly is it that stops it from being a minor issue and something that's written off versus something that uh, right now is you know essentially acts as a kind of blocker on on reinvigorating an economy.
1: Well, right now the the picture is so very different than it's been in the past. First of all. There's much, much more domestic debt, you know, debt that's issued domestically, that's held by the local banks, insurers, pension funds, um, and very often international investors. And then on the external side, we have all these new players. We have all these new players, and it's not just China. It's not just China. Bangladesh gave Sri Lanka money just before Sri Lanka defaulted. Um, India's been doing swap lines in the neighborhood. So, I mean, as everyone is sort of pointing the finger at China, I mean, yes, I mean, obviously China's by pure numbers is, is the, you know, the new giant in the room, but there's also, All these new multilateral players that now have to sit at the table. The BRICS Bank, what do we call it? What's the real name? The New Development Bank. Um, AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Bank. Uh, Increasingly, the Islamic Development Bank. You know, as well as all of the sort of traditional Western ones you know, the IMF, the African Development Bank, et cetera, et cetera. So the myriad of players, both on the public and private sector side, has made this so much more difficult, number one. Number two, The la- I don't believe, we don't believe here at Coyman that there's adequate transparency in debt sustainability numbers, they're often out of date. And, you know, after a country defaults, the IMF goes in and does its debt sustainability analysis. And not everybody's got a seat at the table to to actually be able to analyze that for themselves.
0: In terms of the information infrastructure that exists for getting visibility into the uh, state of A, these economies and B, the state of these instruments for an outsider who wants to learn more about this. So say it's not someone who's working at the IMF but someone who's curious. I've come across one resource, which is um, Red Intelligence, R-E-D-D. You guys have some fantastic tweets, LinkedIn plus you know posts on your website. What are some other resources that one can kind of use to What is the state of the art when it comes to actually understanding the ongoings of the kind of sovereign debt market right now?
1: I think, and, and this is where we might offer some some value added, is the ability to access and talk to the full range of players. You know, the first thing I do is I tap into the IMF website, you know, let's see what the most recent thing is. But I also talked to local banks and brokers. I also talked to international institutional investors about what vulnerabilities are, are they seeing. I mean, for example, um, Sri Lanka, we predicted Sri Lanka's default a year in advance. It was sort of like watching Argentina in the early 90s. You knew what was going to happen. There was no way they were going to be able to hang on. But it took an entire year for the train to actually crash. But I think you need the you need the full you need access to being able to analyze from from the full range of of actors, public and private sector, because very often the you know the bankers and brokers on the ground um, are really well connected. have that on-the-ground expertise
0: I, I think that's incredible one going going back to the Sri Lanka example actually uh, you mentioned this one-year lag and delay when it came to going to the IMF I think Ghana went through a similar thing where you know it's, it's, it's this desire to kind of not look in the mirror perhaps um, or not to you know have to eat your vegetables early on in in, in some way uh, what's an example of a leader that within a leader that sees a sovereign debt crisis impounding and that is able to navigate that effectively, be it a minister of finance or, you know, prime minister or president, um, what does effective leadership from a a government in a country look like to, on the one hand, deal with, uh, you know, domestic questions of stability whilst also finding a way to kind of have ideally not a one-year lag, but rather a quick, um, uh, speedy, remediation of the situation?
1: Well, I actually think that the um, that the Zambians, you know, realized it, defaulted, went to the IMF. But now look where we are. Two and a half years later, we still don't have a resolution. And that is it's not solely on China. Um, That is simply because there's Too many players, as in comparison to, you know, in the old days, it was the Paris Club, the, you know, the big bilateral donors, the London Club of bankers. I mean, that's what it was sort of, you know, when Brady bonds were created. And today we just have this myriad of new bilateral players, new multilateral players, new private sector players, you know, private sector holdings domestically and overseas you know so how many dozens of representatives you know do we need to get to agree on something
0: that's actually very interesting one thing that I think listeners may find notable there is this is you know fundamentally a kind of multi-party coordination problem and uh, one thing that I one, one prompt that I think would be interesting here is in the last you know, 25 years, 30 years, we've had this fantastic you know, advance in information technology. You have Slack, you have Discord, you have Twitter, um, et cetera. I'm inclined to think that there is some way to accelerate the ability to kind of communicate and coordinate. I know there's a lot of kind of folks who think about this in a theoretical sense when it comes to kind of crypto uh, uh, collectives, these collectives called DAOs, uh, these organizations that are oriented around a token and they have certain types of voting systems, etc. I'm inclined to think that there's some sort of, you know, potential uh, tool that could accelerate things here. Maybe I'm being kind of naive, but I just wanted to share that with you know our more kind of tech inclined uh, listeners. Um, zooming out a bit, before we move on to the two uh, regions/slash uh, genres of countries we we're planning on looking at, um, one final question at a high level here is: we've kind of spoken about some of the challenges in emerging markets and frontier markets over the last 30 years, be it certain stagnating markets, or um, we've also spoken about uh, some of the difficulties when it comes to sovereign debt, right? I'm wondering, in terms of opportunities uh, from the last, A, from the last 30 years, the ones that you found be most exciting, you mentioned, you know, beverages and cement, um, and also opportunities moving forward, what are some lessons from the opportunities of the past that can kind of lead to us thinking about opportunities as international investors uh, for the future, what are some things you find exciting there?
1: Well, I think there—I mean, there are sectors that are that are definitely sort of on everybody's radar screen. Um, I mean, beyond the obvious fintech and various <clears throat> technology <laughs> startups and existing companies, which are, you know, as we've seen, there have been more than a few flash in the pan kinds of. <clears throat> kinds of ipos and those sorts of things but areas like um medical care pharmaceuticals i mean covid just sort of brought that out that the globe does not you know it we're not adequately su- supplied and there are certain countries that are well positioned you know already to take advantage of that india being being just one example. The other of course is um green energy. And you know, I scroll through various gazillion news sources, both both international and you know, from the domestic markets every morning, and the amount of investment that's going into solar and wind and you know, which obviously has to if we're going to meet our climate targets. Those are I think are are just opportunities that are gonna flourish over the next few years. Brilliant. So in, in
0: my head right now, as I'm thinking about opportunities, um, and as I was thinking about opportunities, we've got, as you mentioned, you know, fintech and the digitization of finance in, in these regions, hopefully, you know, bypassing the need for uh, brick and mortar uh, banking um, subsidiaries and moving to digitalization. That's one thing that's playing out. As you mentioned, green economy is another. Um, I very much like the uh, pharma note that you mentioned. Um, I read this shocking statistic, which is that in Mali, they were not really able to distribute most of the vaccines. And the reason why was because they don't have a cold chain supply chain that uh, was functioning. They only had actually two refrigerated trucks in the entire country. And I think, uh, thinking about the, the infrastructure for these things as well, the infrastructure for, for example, an industrial zone dedicated towards pharmaceuticals. I know Tanzania has kind of put out a request for investment in that space. Um, I think that's very interesting. So for those who are inclined, as a result of listening to this, to investigate that, I'm super eager to discuss with anyone as well. Um, I think we're gonna split this into two
1: episodes or two. Wait, let me, let me, give, you, let me give you a good FinTech example wonderful um back it was the day after president obama was inaugurated for the first time i landed in nairobi which of course was celebrating you know people were celebrating president obama um after we checked in i you know went to a shop to stock up on snacks and such and it was the very first time i ever saw anybody pay with their cell phone, with their mobile phone. I had never seen it before. The first time I saw it was in Nairobi. And to this day, the sub-Saharan countries are so far ahead of the United States, for example, in terms of, you know, just the basics of, of fintech. I mean, we've got the teenagers paying for things with their telephones, but it's only during COVID did it really start to become widely embraced, whereas in so many emerging markets, it's been the norm for 15 years. I mean, Safaricom in in Kenya was just, you know, so far ahead of Verizon in the U.S., (laughs)
0: I think it's exceptional. I, um, I'm a big fan of these leapfrog technologies, as you've mentioned. Uh, in China, for example, WeChat is a great example where um, in in the US, much of the digital services sector, that's, that being tech in general, is very uh, unbundled and distributed, whereas in WeChat or say Caspi, in Kazakhstan, these are apps right. that integrate to just you know four to five fundamental services, they have you know high market share in those, so it's it's, it's great for the kind of owners, investors, etc. But also from a convenience standpoint, um, an order of magnitude better as well. I also know in India they have something called uh, UPI, which is this universal payments interface, which right. many folks have spoken about as being an order of magnitude better than, for example, the uh, digital banking uh, interfaces we have in the UK um, as well. So I think it's it's, it's interesting to think about the potential for those to be exported, export winners um, for these countries uh, as well.
1: Well, it's 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 interesting that what it's doing is it's allowing so many people to literally skip the 20th century. I mean, they've gone from having no phone, no bank account to having a mobile phone and being able to do everything on it. The first time I ever saw anyone use a mobile phone overseas was a Turk in London. And that was probably 1993 or something. Oh, wow. Wow! I was still carrying around this clunky thing that didn't work overseas. I
0: think on that, uh, the next section of the podcast will be dedicated towards discussing the recent... uh, Turkish election, um, some of the kind of macro economy questions on Egypt. That'll be our kind of emerging market section. And then after that, we're going to touch upon uh, Zambia, Kenya, and Ghana. I know we've just spoken about Zambia and Kenya already, um, but very curious to kind of dig deeper into their situations. Um, we're going to be splitting this into two. So we will take a break now and get started again in a couple of minutes. All right. We are back for part two of the episode with. Beth Morrissey of Climate International. I'm looking forward to digging deeper into, uh, in this case, you know, structural reform and certain macro questions and macro lessons we can take from uh, two particular case studies, one being Egypt and the other being Turkey. Now I know you have some uh, significant personal experience with Turkey, so I was hoping for you to get your thoughts on one, the kind of recent history of Turkey in terms of its kind of economy, etc. Uh, and like two, where you kind of see it at right now on a kind of you know, macro storytelling basis.
1: Yeah, I um, I was actually a foreign exchange student in Turkey um, back before the last formal military coup in 1980, which really dates me, I realize. Um, also did my master's thesis research in uh, in Istanbul, looking at economic development needs. So I've you know, Turkey's sort of a pet project of mine. I can still um understand the language. I don't speak it very well except to talk to a cab driver or order a meal. Um so let's let's you know go back sort of you know this Erdogan guy. <laughs> okay. What we have to remember is Erdogan and his AKP party first sort of rose following the 1999 earthquake in Izmit, Turkey, which, by the way, is where I was a foreign exchange student. Um, At that point, it took about three and a half hours on the train from Istanbul to Izmit. Um, After Erdogan had been in power for about a decade, it took about 35 minutes. Which just goes to show, you know, the massive infrastructure investment in in necessary things, in necessary things, not building, you know, a thousand room palace and those sorts of things. So, you know, I think his first decade, you know, was a success. We didn't have a coalition government which made a huge difference. The economy was stabilized. Liberalization happened. Capital markets were deepened. um, And as I said, you know, appropriate infrastructure was developed. Now, the past decade, particularly after the, you know, so-called attempted coup in 2016 and the adoption of this, the president is everything system in 2017, It was like somebody switched a light bulb. We went from this liberal democracy to, I guess we're calling it an autocracy at the moment. Um, Foreign investors have just fled, Western foreign investors have fled on um, Erdogan's sort of, the, the chosen term seems to be unorthodox, but I think most of us would call it nuts. Um, economic policies that with the base being that high interest rates cause high inflation. Well, we all know that's not the case. And the past few years with, you know, we've gone through four central bank governors. Each one has been replaced with yet another yes man. Um, The central bank has blown through essentially all of its reserves to support the currency in the run-up to the election. And the fiscal deficit this year is going to be stratospheric because not only has Erdogan done what is traditionally done in, in many emerging markets, you know, you hike public sector wages, you promise free gas in order to get elected. You know, you give cash handouts. Um... You know, and basically at this point, we could be at the verge of a balance of payments crisis. Now, it's not going to happen in the next few months because the Turks always benefit from lower food prices, just although there is drought in Turkey as well, um, and an influx of, of foreign tourists in the summer. Now, the foreign tourists may not be at the same level because of the Russia-Ukraine war. And we certainly saw that um, last year. Now it's, this morning it was, it was comical almost. For days, even before the second round of the election, everyone was saying, former finance minister, Simsek's going to come back. He's going to save the day. Everybody loves him. You know, former, former Merrill Lynch and everybody, you know, the foreign investment community knows him. They trust him. Um, And word on the street this morning is apparently that in fact, when the new cabinet is announced tomorrow, that Simsek will be there, but that doesn't, you know, it's, it's not going to be a miracle cure because the real question is, Will new appointees, even if they are seen as people that international investors know and trust and that believe in orthodox monetary and fiscal policy, the question is, is Erdogan going to let go and actually allow them to implement the needed changes? Are we going to have a new central bank governor who's going to say, no, I need to hike interest rates? And that—that that I think is the is the key question. And the other thing is, a couple of days after the election, the second round election, Erdogan made this, you know, sort of huge public statement that um, the GCC had been so supportive and, you know, pouring money into the central bank, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's interesting because the GCC has made perfectly clear for example, in Egypt, that it now expects a return for its investments. It's, they're not going to, the Saudis and the Emiratis and even the, I'm not so sure about, the Qataris, um, not so sure they're going to continue to just pump money into the Central Bank of Egypt. And what's going to need to happen in order to attract back foreign investors? I mean, it's fascinating. A decade ago, foreign investors held at least a quarter, if not more, of domestic government treasury bills and bonds. Today, it's like 0.5%. We've also got I mean, they used to hold well over half the free float on the Istanbul Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. It's down to like 25%. Wow. And then we've got, so, you know, we're looking at the external accounts, which look quite scary. And I think on the fiscal side, it's, it's going to look even worse. They introduced last year um, FX protected accounts that have attracted, you know, something over like a hundred billion dollars. Well, if there's a rapid depreciation of the lira and somebody needs to make good on these deposits, it's going to be quite, quite costly.
0: I'm wondering two things, one specific question before getting to the slightly higher level question. Um, What what exactly are FX accounts?
1: Foreigners took their, all of their, were encouraged to take their dollar deposits Mm. and put them in these protected accounts. And the accounts are protected against Lira devaluation. So if the Lira goes from today's 20 point whatever to 29 or whatever many of the the big houses on the street are saying the government's gonna have to make up that difference or the central bank or i mean somebody's gonna have to make up that difference you know yeah. instead of paying a hundred dollars back they're gonna have to be paying you know 140 dollars back or something
0: so, if we're going back for a second in terms of you know, noticing the lessons you know, you mentioned, for example, that in, in Sri Lanka's case, there were the signs two years before and you're obviously paying attention to certain you know, financial metrics in terms of its ability to pay back its debt, etc., cetera, um, or just certain signals. What do you think the leading indicators are for uh, an economy and a regime that's engaging in effective economic management looks like? Um, given that these feedback loops take a while to kind of, you know, bake in, it takes a while to kind of have things go wrong and to have things go right. Um, what do you think the kind of uh, preliminary signs are of an economy and its management going in, as you've mentioned, this type of direction, which uh, creates a lot of macro turbulence um, and, and difficulties for foreign investors? What are kind of like the, the, the
1: early signs of something like that? Um, well, it's interesting because we've we've seen it so many times before. Um, if an exchange rate is artificially high. And the central bank is just pumping out cash to keep it artificially high. Um, And, I mean, you can go back to the Mexican peso crisis and look at current account deficit. I mean, we've had, you know, current account deficit became sort of trendy in the mid-90s as one of the key decision-making factors investors need to look at, you know, are they going to be able to service their external needs? And Turkey has virtually always been a current account deficit country. Now there are current account deficit countries that have turned themselves around. Um, I mean, Brazil, for example, you know, long had sort of a, not a scary current account deficit, um, but they're very clearly in 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 surplus mode at the moment. Um, it, same with Indonesia. I mean, Indonesia was long tarred with that current account deficit country label. And, you know, they've managed to get it together. And many of these countries were able to do it by switching from massive external borrowing to being able to borrow domestically because their domestic markets, their domestic financial sector has deepened. So, you know, you do have honest to God pension funds. You have insurers who actually have, a you know, a long term mandate. You know, you don't have the maturity mismatches we used to have. On that
0: um, one thing, one book I've enjoyed recently is Charlie Robertson's book on um, you know, the time traveling economist. Uh, I loved Charlie's book. <laughs> what are some of your high level thoughts on that? Given that you've pointed to one of the kind of sub arguments that he makes in terms of domestic savings having such a crucial role
1: in uh, domestic economy. domestic savings has become. It used to be something that that analysts really didn't pay much attention to, and it's really become much more important, particularly as local markets have deepened. You know, back when when local currency debt first sort of became even a little bit trendy, in most markets, in most of the, you know, sort of newer and frontier markets, you couldn't buy paper, that with maturity longer than a year, you know, and now we've got, you know, Kenyans with, you know, 10 years domestic bonds and, you know, many of these markets have much longer term paper because now they actually have, have institutions to buy them that, that require this long-term paper.
0: What are your thoughts on, I remember there's this exchange that does some sort of local currency um, bond um, uh, protection of sorts or swap. It enables more local borrowing. It starts with a T, if I'm not mistaken. Um, are you are you familiar with that? It's uh, an offshoot of some development finance corporation. No. Okay, fine. I'm going to look into that later and hopefully I'll kind of add that to the show notes. I think that's an interesting case study that's worth. Uh, citing here going back to the topic of um, economic um, reforms so we're talking about the direction in which uh turkey could go moving forward before touching upon um probabilistically what you think is most likely um because you've laid out a few of the possibilities and like a few of the kind of scenario analyses there um I, I think it'd be worth looking a bit deeper into um, another case study here being egypt um in terms of its uh you know, narrative of economic, of economic reform. Um, if you were just like zoom out a bit, what is its economic story over the last twenty years, and um, what is uh, what is it engaging in right now, in your view?
1: Well, for Egypt, it's um, I'm having flashbacks. Actually, I mean, I'm having total flashbacks. Back in the it was um, 1993, actually, which in retrospect, we all joke that it was a year you had to be a moron not to make money in emerging markets. Um, it was the year sort of emerging markets exploded out of nowhere. And we had fun, you know, the number of funds probably quadruple in a year. And, you know, virtually every market was up. 1993? Um, I be- Yes, it was 1993. We were tasked with um, working on a multilateral project to help direct... Um, Egypt's privatization program. We were looking at deepening the capital market. Uh, We were looking at, you know, the companies. Uh, We we worked on the capital market part. I did not work on the companies. Um, But at the time, the program was pushing, floating the currency and privatization. Well, what's interesting is Paints and Chemicals, which was privatized last month, was on the list in 1993. I mean, they have had some successes over the years. They've, they've had su- some successes during some IMF programs. But the fact that one of the banks and the Paints and chemical company we're on the list in 1993, and they're still there. You know, they were still there in 2023. You know, just we've 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 really gone back to the past. And what's interesting this time is, you know, Egypt's pledged to sell something like nearly three dozen state-owned companies by March 24. And by the end of this month, they were to raise 2.5 billion in in stake sales, and it's it's simply really not happening. And part of that is, you know, the IMF—they've devalued several times. The currency's lost like 50 percent of its value over the past year, but the currency still number 1 is deemed overvalued and number 2 is still not free floating so the foreign investors including the gcc you know who have promised to you know help move this along nobody really wants to invest until they see where the currency is going to stabilize I mean, everyone's expecting another big devaluation if they... And meanwhile, the IMF is saying, you got to float the currency. How do these devaluations happen? Um, I'm, not, I'm not too familiar with the mechanics behind it. The central bank has to stop intervening to support the currency.
0: <laughs> the, 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 the way they intervene right now being... Like, like how exactly do
1: they intervene? They're they're selling dollars to support to buy the currency, which them. is the same thing the Turkish Central Bank is doing. Okay, okay. fascinating. Absolutely. And part, you know, part of their reserve drawdown was, um, you know, was directly a result of the war, because Egypt is one of the world's biggest wheat importers, and, you know, for the first six months of the war. People were actually, you know, worried that some of these massive weed importers were, were going to start to go hungry. Um, and as a result, <clears throat> inflation rose. Treasury yields didn't rise as much. And foreign investors sort of in one. You know, over the course of less than six months, Dumped. 20 billion U.S. dollars worth of local T-bills. Oh, wow. So, boom. No matter what Egypt's reserves were, 20 billion was going to be a big hit.
0: Shocking out And so, this raises a question that I'm quite curious about here. Um, You're talking about the kind of sclerotic kind of pace of the privatization program. And perhaps the lack of will behind it. Um, at the beginning of the podcast, we began by talking about actually, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the privatisations that took place in Russia. Um, there's there's a lot of open questions that relates to what does an effective privatisation program actually look like from a kind of mechanical design perspective in terms of the bidding, but also in terms of the speed and which assets should be privatised. Uh, tapping into kind of you know, your expertise here in terms of case studies and uh, you know context that you've
1: seen does it part, great- of the problem, yeah. part of the problem in Egypt is <clears throat> some of these companies are owned by the military ah. and the military doesn't want to let go of any power it has you know they control these companies the other is <clears throat> and you know it's happened you know everywhere um, there's fear of social unrest Because if a, you know, if a serious buyer comes in and buys a state-owned enterprise that was, you know, just bleeding cash, um, you know, hadn't turned to profit in, you know, a decade or more, um, you know, the first thing they're going to do is rationalize, you know, employees. And, you know, obviously that's not popular, particularly when we've got inflation running over 30%. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you fire, you know, hundreds of people when inflation's running over 30 percent? We've cut subsidies on everything but bread. You know, so nothing's affordable.
0: Uh, right. Right. Oh, have you heard of the case study of Karachi Electric in Pakistan and abroad capital by chance?
1: Well, I certainly I've certainly followed Pakistan closely. I,
0: well, th- th- this is an interesting case study. So there's this um, book called The Key Man, and it talks about this uh, investment firm called Raj Capital. Which, I loved that book. <laughs> oh, okay, fantastic. So I mean, in, in this case, maybe, perhaps you'd want to kind of retell the story, but one of the more fascinating case studies is similar to what you just described, which is Karachi Electric um, essentially being this, you know, state-owned utility provider that, as mentioned, was bleeding money, was not able to reinvest, and as a result was just underperforming in terms of its provisioning of uh, electricity for the country. And um you have this you know foreign investor that comes in, uh, unfortunately, he ends up being a fraud. But the, um, this investment case well, as, as a case study shows just the complexities of dealing with you know local politics, um, employees that you know are, are crucial to local politics as well. Um, but also there's a bit of you know, international relations where they have a Chinese buyer who they're trying to kind of negotiate with, and all these other un- underhanded things. It's one of the shocking case studies out there.
1: Yeah. And and that's, I mean, I don't believe there's any privatization program that's been done anywhere, you know, even when the UK did it in the seventies, that hasn't been beset by some corruption. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's the nature of the beast, you it know, no matter know. which kind of privatization you, you know, you try to do, we saw the, you know, we saw what happened in Russia with the voucher program, So, yeah, we ended up with, you know, a dozen oligarchs who owned the crown jewels Mm -hmm. because the local population who was handed these vouchers were so eager to sell them at any sort of profit that they just, you know, handed them over. And the oligarchs were more than happy to pay, you know, a 20 percent premium over, you know, what they were really worth so that they could build their empires. It's quite the case study, it's quite the case study. So, uh,
0: moving from um, these emerging markets which were like Egypt and Turkey, and going back to kind of yeah, the frontier markets of Zambia, uh, Kenya and Ghana, um, I, I'm wondering, uh, what's your kind of assessment right now of their situation as it relates to where it's going to look, where it's heading um, comparatively in the next few years, given that uh, they're all kind of, as mentioned, facing a significant solid debt distress?
1: Well, according to the IMF, there's at least 20 countries that are teetering on the edge, not necessarily just in sub-Saharan Africa, but there are 20 countries globally that are are teetering at the edge. And, you know, as we talked about a little bit, um, you know, yes, some of it was economic mismanagement over the years, um, and some of it was opportunistic. When, I mean, the Seychelles was the first to, except for South Africa, of course, um, was the first to come to market in 2006, followed the next year by, you know, by Ghana. I mean, Ghana's run up the most amazing amount of debt and they were down to less than a month of import coverage. But what's interesting, Ghana's, Ghana's has been you know, was able to win over this IMF program fairly quickly. And part of that was they made, you know, when they defaulted, they said, okay, there's also got to be a domestic bond exchange because half of our debt is in the local market. And the only group that hasn't been solved domestically um are the pension funds, but it looks like they're getting close. They're going to get longer maturities. They're going to replace what they have with longer maturities. And, you know, eventually the, you know, the the yield on them will be significantly higher. Um, but, you know, great. If you stretch it another 10 years that, you know, that works.
0: The other mm-hmm. part
1: of, of the quick resolution of Ghana is that, you know, despite um, the $5.5 to it owed to lender nations, only $1.9 of it was to China. Um, Ghana was not depending on China for all of its investment. and, um, But commercial creditors... Are owed about 15 billion, of which 13 is in Eurobonds, because Ghana was, you know, arguably the continent's darling, particularly after they found gas, you know, nearly 20 years ago.
0: In the case of Ghana, are there any talks of uh, unique, um, uh, are there, well, structural adjustment? Um, uh, debt, for na- debt for nature swaps or debt for equity swaps kind of taking place in these negotiations, or is it
1: just extension of maturities? Um, it and- seems to it seems to be just haircuts and extensions of maturities. Um, that that I have not heard heard for Ghana. I wouldn't be surprised if over the next few months, you know, even if Kenya doesn't default, that there's some. I think there's some serious opportunities for de- for nature swaps um, in Kenya. Okay, and do you like right now is it just
0: the nature conservatory that's kind of looking at that, or are there other organizations that are now mobilizing capital for that as well?
1: The nature conservatory seems to be, you know, taking the lead on identification of of opportunities, ones that are really going to accomplish what they set out to do because nobody wants for one of these debt for nature swaps or these blue bonds or whatever. Nobody wants next year to wake up and say, you know, oh my gosh, this was like worse than any greenwashing we've ever seen. So I think it's really important that we have not that they're, I mean they're not independent, but they're also not market players. You know, they're way more independent than you know, than a you know, Citibank would be.
0: Understood, Understood. Cool. In in terms of um <clears throat> debt for equity swaps or other con- or concessions, is that a part of the playbook there as well that kind of exists for kind of remediating
1: um bondholders I'm not sure there's enough depth in some of these markets for for some of the debt for equity swaps um, but what's interesting is is people are looking at these at these debt equity and you know debt nature swaps like they're brand new, and they're not mhm. There have been tiny examples of these since you know probably the eighties and nineties
0: Could you run us through a couple of examples um from the eighties and nineties like any case studies beginning to end
1: well i know I know there were some there were some in Africa on um to do with mining but it's it's Nobody's reinvent, reinventing the wheel, I think, is what's what's important for people to take away right now, that this is a really legitimate way to deal with these debt situations.
0: Fantastic. Um, all right. So before wrapping up, two final questions for you, Beth. Uh, one is in terms of the... Um, broader you know future we're talking about themes and opportunities uh just in in general agnostic to whether it's good or bad what do you think some of the underlying kind of you know trends and developments that investors in particular should be paying attention to um over the 2020s um should be given where we're kind of like you know laying the foundation for right now as you mentioned one of the big stories has been uh the war uh, another one has been um as you mentioned this death, debt distress situation
1: uh, is there anything else That uh, comes to mind here for kind of your anchors for thinking about. Well, I I think as, as more and more people are beginning to reengage with emerging and frontier markets after sort of COVID and, um, you know, on the equity side and even on the debt side, people like to, as they used to say in the old days, go and kick the tires. Um, when you're grounded, you can't do that. Um, I think what's one of the things I'd love to emphasize is, you know if you look at the IMF the, the IMF projections and the World Bank projections for just the basics like GDP growth, emerging and frontier markets are going to f- you know strip out China just like let's forget China even exists. Mm-hmm. Um, emerging and frontier markets are going to grow probably two, if not two and a half times faster than developed markets. And yes, we're looking at all of these countries under debt distress, but then you look at like you know Italy and Japan and all the attention that's been paid to the u s over the past few weeks um these these debt issues are not not just emerging and frontier market issues it's It's global even if you even if you strip out china
0: mm-hmm. it's international right now, it seems.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's across the globe. I mean, COVID and the supply chain because of COVID and then the supply chain when the war broke out, and commodity prices, which you know, finally have settled again. But I mean, nobody escaped. You know, perhaps East you know, East Asia has arguably done better. They have not been beset by massive inflation. But nobody escaped the the debt issues. I mean, they've got property bubbles all over Asia right now. I mean, we can look at Vietnam, which was, you know, another one of those darling frontier markets. Um, you know, they've got a property bubble that's bursting all over. Um, yet, they have single-digit inflation. I,
0: uh, I saw a pretty shocking um, graph the other day. Uh, from Asia Frontier Fund, where they were looking at Vietnamese um, equities uh, and their valuations, and it was showing that, um, essentially, that back where they were 10 years ago in terms of this kind of cyclicality where they've just gone back in terms of buying, um, in, in, in terms of the pricing. Uh, well, any thoughts on that?
1: Well, Asia's become... Asia. Vietnam has become sort of one of the key players for... Asian supply chains. Um, they overborrowed. You know, leverage in the economy overall was was very very high. Um, obviously, you know, FDI and portfolio inflows fell off a cliff during COVID. Um, but I think you know, once they once they muddle through. You know, and how many countries have had property busts? I mean, this happens all the time. You know, yeah. been there seen it. It'll probably take them another year to sort of work out their property bust. Um, but at the meantime, you know, I think we can expect to see because of higher growth and because of lower inflation, certainly than you know, many places, um, we will see them sort of return to that favored nation for investors position i think probably over the next year and part of that is part of that is some of the regional countries pulling their companies pulling out of china because they don't want to get caught in any sort of sanctions or trade wars or whatever and moving to some place where they're not going to get caught in that trap it's
0: the uh, unbundling and defragmentation of China as the, um, you know, workshop of
1: the world in some sense. Uh, exactly. Plus, it's, I mean, Vietnam is way cheaper than China to manufacture things.
0: That seems to be the case. All right. Fantastic. So final question uh, before we kind of wrap up here is do you have any um, resources, recommendations or prompts that you want to give uh, our listeners after this you know, wide ranging conversation on the sovereign debt and uh, the international markets?
1: Well, of course, I'd be negligent if I didn't say what you really should do if you want sort of in-depth analysis with some historical precedent. You could, of course, contact Climate International. Um, The other thing um, that we've, you know, we've done all this talking about about fintech and, you know, how exciting AI and crypto and whatever are. Uh, We recently started working with a, a group called, um, called EM Alpha. And we did this very cool project looking at, um, looking at what the local media and the regional media were saying in terms of the election and the direction of the lira. And it, despite what we were hearing in the Western press last week, Before the second round, I mean, the Western press was like, oh, no, Klitsch is really going to, you know, he's going to he's going to come out on top and whatever. Um, This AI program. Showed very clearly that Erdogan was going to win, and that actually was was our analysis as well. So we've married this or we've married this, you know, brand new multilingual AI process with our analysis based on based on history the other thing i think investors really need to do right now is to dig you know whether you do it yourselves whether you hire somebody else um you got to dig about you know obviously the domestic market the you know external balances uh but also Regional relations, dependent on, on commodities and increasingly, and it's, it's something that's, you know, that you really have to look around for, um, is the, the impact of climate change. So it used to be you looked at, you know, growth and inflation and what the Fed was going to do, but the world has become far more complicated and there's so many more issues that that really need to be to be analyzed in order to make a a solid decision and it's increasingly i mean it's just so much more complex than it was you know 20 or 30 years ago i mean obviously the fed is still going to be a great mover of fund flows as it always has been Uh, But now we've got the ECB saying, you know, boy, if the Bank of Japan does something, you know, the whole world could change again. And Mm -hmm. really, since the start of the emerging markets interest 30 years ago, Japan's been ignored, except for the fact that, you know, Japanese investors buy emerging market bonds (laughs) because they they need some yield to pick up somewhere.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, I hope that our listeners are able to integrate those messages and they'll be able to reach out to you and uh, your counterparts as well when it comes to digging deeper, um, as you've uh, described. Thank you so much for uh, participating in this, Beth. It's been um, wonderful. Well, thank you, Chris. This has been fun. (laughs) It has.